morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, and starting at verse 34. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is the Gospel of Christ. As a result of what tell us now, for we ask it in your name. Amen. The chameleon syndrome. Do you know what that is? Um, a few years ago, my wife and I visited Marrakesh in Morocco, and we came, we came across a market selling hundreds of uh, rickety old wooden crates full of chameleon lizards. And as you may know, chameleons are extraordinary. They can change their appearance, to be camouflaged and to blend in with any background to avoid predators. And many Christians and churches suffer from the spiritual equivalent that we might call the chameleon syndrome, desperately trying to fit in with the world around us for fear of being discovered and then scorned, criticised or cancelled for following Jesus Christ and his teachings. And, you know, you do have to ask yourself, why would you risk hostility from those around us through trying to arrange, I don't know, coffee with a friend to explain your faith to them, to invite them to a barbecue with Christian friends to be Christian friends, or to come to a church guest event, or send them a Christian podcast or something. But why would you, why would you come out and um, be openly a Christian when in the Western world alone you're going to face hostility for that? I suppose in the end it all depends on how you see people. I mean, what do you see when you see a crowd of people? If you walk down to your local park, I don't know, what's your local park here? What's the local park here? What's it called? Water park? You go down to Water Park, or you go to the Crusader Stadium, or you go to the Westfield Shopping Centre, and you see lots of people. What do you see when you see people? Do you see selfish people who deserve God's wrath? or successful people who don't need anything from us. Or perhaps you don't see them at all because you're so busy trying to survive in life. What do we see when we see crowds of people? Well, our passage tells us that when Jesus saw crowds of people, he was filled with a gut-wrenching compassion for them. Because he understood that more than money or vaccines or peace, they need him. They need him like sheep need a shepherd. Now there are three simple things that emerge from this passage about Jesus' attitude to people that I want us to learn. Well, I don't, you don't care what I, I think. I think God wants us to learn this from the passage. And they're very simple. The first one's the longest. The first one's this. I don't know if you realised it, but Jesus was an evangelist. Jesus was an evangelist. Have a look at me at verse 35. If you still got the passage open. 
Jesus went to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Verse 35 is actually almost word for word the same as chapter 4, verse 23 to 25. Because those words in chapter 4 prepared readers for Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which was the first of the five great sermons in Matthew, perhaps matching the first five books of the Old Testament, Law of Moses, perhaps. The same as here, this little passage, 9.35 to 38, prepares us for his second great sermon, which launched the mission of his twelve disciples, described in the next chapter, chapter 10. And they both summarise Jesus' evangelistic campaigns. In other words, the context of all his teaching. In other words, describing what Jesus was constantly doing to reach people with the gospel and training his disciples to do the same. I mean, did you hear the scale of it? It says Jesus went through all the towns and villages. Well, apparently there were over 200 of them. Josephus reckons there were 3 million people living there. This wasn't a casual stroll, speaking to a few random passers-by, but a relentless, demanding and systematic effort to reach as many people as possible before he died. Now, as the promised Messiah, he focused initially upon the Jewish people, it was their priority in God's planned history of salvation. But he will later widen his mission to all nations at the end of this book in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Did you hear his three characteristic activities? Teaching in the synagogues. I guess rabbis were invited to teach the scriptures. So that was the obvious place for him to start, as Paul did later in his missions. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom. 4.17 explains this is Proclaiming that God's kingdom has come near because he's the king of heaven. And he's come to grant access to his eternal kingdom through his death. And healing the sick to authenticate his power as the divine king, to reveal his grace and kindness towards people, and to demonstrate the blessed quality of life in his new creation. In the next chapter, he authorises his foundational twelve apostles to continue this foundational ministry with the same authenticating signs and wonders, which are still effective today, of course, as the compelling evidence that we need through the pages of the Bible as we read these remarkable signs and wonders. But notice evangelism was clearly Jesus' priority. It was his characteristic activity. Where's Jesus? Oh, he's down the park evangelizing. That's what he's always doing. So he came not just to be the gospel, but to proclaim the gospel and to train his followers to do the same. You see, being a Christian is primarily about being a holy evangelist. I mean, when he first called his disciples, what did he say? Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. In other words, come follow me and I'll train you to reach other people. And when he left them, he said, last final word, oh, don't, don't forget this, guys, last thing I want to say to you, go and make disciples of all nations. You see, evangelism isn't a special activity for occasional seasons of mission or just for an elite minority of very confident people. It's about doing whatever we can as the people we are in the circumstances God has put us with the resources and opportunities he's entrusted to us. Whatever we can to contribute to his mission to reach the lost here in Christchurch and beyond. That is what we're here for. That you can't be like Jesus 
unless you committed to prayerful outreach. Like this characteristic priority in his preaching, in his small groups, and in his counselling. Notice in his uh, biblical counselling, I mean, we're greatly blessed in our country by advances in biblical counselling, and thank God for that. One of the main reasons, though, is because the more we can understand the mess that people's lives are in, especially as the gulf between secular worldviews and Christian worldview, as that worldview grows, we need them to understand how does the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord connects with normal people in normal lives. And one of the things I worry about is, you know, you, you, you go for a drink with a, with a Christian, uh, sorry, a non-Christian mate, and you say to him, look, I was, I was just wondering, um, Matt, would you like to come to uh, church? You know, you know I, I follow Jesus, and um, I believe that Jesus Christ came to die for our sins, and he rose again, died for the way to heaven. It's brilliant, and I'd love you to come hear about it. And, and he says, oh, yeah, I knew you were a Christian, Christian but at the moment, um, my daughter's suffering with anorexia, and um, my marriage is really in a mess at the moment. I'm struggling with debt, and um, my wife's health's not good. And I kind of think I'm just a little bit overwhelmed at the moment. And so I'm just wondering, maybe when things have cleared up a bit, maybe then I could come to church. And we say, oh, I have no idea. Okay, then later maybe. Because we haven't got the confidence to say, I know someone who can help you with this. See, Jesus' biblical counsel is primarily not about improving our relationship with our kids. It's evangelistic. That's why we need all the help we can get with it. You see, all Christians have two kinds of ministry. We have creation ministry and we have gospel ministry. When God created our ancestors, he said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, and he put them in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. It's called the creation mandate. And we all play our part in obeying that command when we contribute to the wise stewardship of the earth's resources, just government of our society, and improving the welfare of humanity in every way we can. However, when humanity rebelled, God sent his Savior to die for our sins, rise to offer salvation, and he declared his gospel mandate. Now go and make disciples of all nations. And so all of life is now fulfilling Christ's great commission to bring disciples of all nations into his new creation. We don't divide the word into secular and sacred, like the monks of old. We worship God in every area of life. But that doesn't mean that our two kinds of ministry are equally important to God, as if he doesn't mind if we spend the rest of our life down at the golf club with Christian friends. And they were born with unbelievers. Very quickly, there are six biblical reasons why everyone's word ministry, gospel ministry, takes priority over our creation ministry. Number one, gospel ministry was Jesus' priority. Here in this passage, elsewhere, Jesus confronted with crowds. For example, in Mark 1, knowing he can miraculously heal everybody, drew aside to pray and came back saying, let's go on to the nearby villages so I can preach the gospel because that's why I've come. Jesus regarded the relief of human suffering in hell forever through evangelism as even more urgent than healing the sick. Now, we don't use the priority as an excuse for neglecting those we can help without undermining our gospel ministry. But we do try to love people in every way we can, and especially with the gospel, because the gospel is the best thing you can do for anyone. Secondly, word ministry meets people's deepest needs. Even more than 
vaccines or kids. People need the gospel. Now obviously, if they're gasping for breath in a COVID ward, or hiding from rockets in the key underground, then we'll want to help them get a vaccine and help them get into some peace so that we can share the word ministry with them. Never forget that the most loving thing you can do for someone is to introduce them to Jesus because he can deliver them from hell to heaven forever. And eternity is a very, very good time. Third, because word ministry brings deep social change. People's changed lives reduce the misery of injustice, poverty, addiction and violence. The most effective strategy for helping our community is to multiply word ministry through which Jesus transforms people. Fourthly, word ministry grows the kingdom of God. God's kingdom cannot grow just through righteous acts alone, but only as submit, people submit to the king of God's kingdom who is proclaimed by the gospel. Fifthly, word ministry is God's priority. He's delayed the end of the world for more gospel ministry. Just two, three. The reason we're still here and not yet in heaven is that we're here for gospel ministry. It's God's priority. And sixthly, word ministry glorifies God. Paul writes, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God, which explains means I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, which he then says is that they may be saved. When we maximise our word ministry to proclaim Christ, we glorify God. The world will never celebrate gospel ministry, and worldly Christians will want us to behave like social workers, because they have little awareness of spiritual need and little confidence in the power of the gospel. But Jesus wants us to behave like him. Like my friend Dima in Belarus, decided not to flee the country, like most of his church leadership, but to stay to preach the gospel to the Ukrainian refugees because word ministry is what they most desperately need. And so while the defining activity of a church gathering is Bible teaching, the purpose of Bible teaching is to equip believers to follow Jesus in lives of holy evangelism. We're not here for Bible teaching. We're here to be equipped with God's word to reach the lost. Because Jesus was a cross-cultural missionary, a church-planting evangelist. So that's the first thing. Jesus was an evangelist. And if we want to be like Jesus and we want to please Jesus, then get involved in evangelism in any way you can. Because Jesus was an evangelist. Secondly, people need Jesus. People need Jesus. You see, how we treat people depends on how we see them. A Christian church should offer people what we should offer people depends on how what we think is their greatest need. Jesus saw beneath the appearances of people their deep internal needs. He saw the crowds of his day like flocks of sheep prone to wander, vulnerable to predators, poor at foraging for food, but precious to the farmer, desperately in need of the leadership, protection, and provision of a good shepherd. You see, pastoral ministry is not just being kind to people. It's being kind to people as we share the gospel with them. You know that the Lord's shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. If you read that psalm, he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death into the feast in the presence of God. Pastoral ministry is redemptive. Same in Psalm 78. In Ezekiel 34, when God sees Israel desperately in need of good pastoral ministry, he describes what God will do. And he uses words like, I will reach, rescue, and gather. That 
place to evangelize people. And then I will heal, feed, and tend them. That is to teach them God's restorative word. And then he says, and I will govern, protect, and provide for the sheep through his word. Pastoral ministry is gospel ministry. Delivered kindly, delivered with love, to reach people's deepest need. You see, he saw them as people desperately in need of a good shepherd. These didn't see people as wicked sinners deserving judgment, or gifted workers with resources to be exploited, or wearying burdens with problems to clog up his diary. He sees them as harassed, that's literally tortured, and helpless, that is burdened. Do you know anybody who's stressed and burdened in this city? Do you think there's anybody around you might be stressed or burdened? Isn't everybody stressed and burdened? Stressed because of sin, burdened with damage of sin. And what he feels for them, the particular word compassion used here is only ever used of Jesus, only in the Gospels, and four times in Matthew, and always of Jesus, to describe how he sees people. And the word literally means entrails. Entrails. We might say gut-wrenching tenderness. In chapter 14, verse 14, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had gut-wrenching compassion upon them. Chapter 15, verse 31, Jesus called his disciples to, to, to him and he said, I have gut-wrenching compassion for these people. Chapter 20, verse 34, Jesus had gut-wrenching compassion upon them. You know when you see a picture on the TV of some desperate child, emaciated and desperately in need of help, and you look at the child and you go, oh my goodness, you feel someone's punched in your guts, don't you? Look at that poor kid. Look at that poor kid. They need help. That is how Jesus feels about everyone he meets. Look at these people. Look at these people in Christ Church. They need me. They need me. And I now realize the primary reason that we struggle to evangelize our communities is not that they're more hostile than previous cultures. I mean, it's like saying that one cemetery is more dead than another. It's always been hard evangelizing. Now, our issue is we don't love people enough. We have not Jesus' gut-wrenching compassion for people. Our cities like London and Christchurch are emerging spiritual disasters. I mean, can you imagine walking home from here Street, just think of your street as you're walking past the houses and you see in through one of the windows that you know, there's a fag that's dropped on the, on the carpet and the carpet's on fire, the curtains are on fire, and you realize the family's gone to bed upstairs, you can tell because there's tricycles and plastic in the garden everywhere. You just think there's obviously a family living here and they've gone to bed and there's a cigarette and the place is on fire. What do you do next? I mean, I suppose you could say, Oh, look. Coding on forever, and there'll be other people. You know, I'm really busy. I do my, I do my bit. You know, there's lots of other people who can help out. You, you don't do you? I mean, if you've got an ounce of humanity, and you're going to charge up the front door and hammer on the front door. You know, get out, get out! You need your house is on fire. You know, shut up, leave us alone. We're all asleep. No, 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 no! You need to get out. Your house is on fire. And spiritually speaking, Jesus said that the truth is, friends, you. Your whole street is on fire. 
Because arriving in the presence of God unforgiven is like arriving on the surface of the sun without a spacesuit. Jesus said it's, it's, like, it's like living in fire to arrive in the presence of God unforgiven. And therefore our priority is to reach the people. I don't know what it means for you in practice. I don't know whether it means that you drop an invitation into every street, every house on the street to a barbecue and then you invite Joel along to come and you know, explain the true meaning of Christianity. I don't know whether it means that you invite people to the next church event here. I don't know whether it means that you and a friend decide to pray every Friday evening for an hour for the people on your street and then you drop gospel booklets through the wood. I don't know what it means. I'll tell you one thing it doesn't mean. You don't do nothing. You don't just watch the houses in your street burn to the ground and do nothing. You've got to try and do something if you have any of Jesus' gut-wrenching compassion for others. It was evangelized because people need Jesus. Jesus was an evangelist. People need Jesus. And now thirdly, the harvest needs workers. This is verse 37 to 38. Jesus was focused on the huge task of evangelizing Galilee. And so he identified two features of the age in which we still live, which he could see all around him. Firstly, the harvest is plentiful, but secondly, the workers are few. He knew that the twelve are nowhere near enough. The harvest is ripe because sinners are ready to be saved. When we read, he said to his disciples, he was speaking to everyone, not just his apostles. And like his fishing metaphor, he now uses a harvest metaphor. Yes, there'll be a harvest of judgment one day, but before that, there's a harvest of salvation. And he says, look, the harvest is ripe. There's people everywhere in the city who need saving. In London, 90% of the population claim no allegiance to Jesus. And so it's our priority to reach them. You see, the challenge is not the hardness of society, but the shortage of workers. The harvest is plentiful. We're surrounded by people ready to be saved. There's no shortage of evangelistic opportunity. We're surrounded by unbelievers. I mean, Christchurch, like London, is a wonderful place to live because I understand that this city is full of unbelievers. Is that right? So you could almost work in any office and you'd be surrounded by unbelievers. I mean, how wonderful. I mean, wouldn't it be terrible to work in an office and you can have lunch with a colleague and you oh, you're already good? No, you're already good. Okay. Uh, do, do you want to have coffee? Oh no! Oh, what? You're a believer? Oh, okay. Um, go to the, you know, the water cooler. Hi, do you, do you fancy coming to? Ch oh, you're already. Oh. What am I here for? I mean, that, wouldn't it be wonderful to work in an office where this guy's a Muslim, and that guy's a Satanist, and there's three Buddhists and 14 secular atheists, <laughs> and a couple of Roman Catholics, and what they, what they think, surrounded with unbelievers. I mean, that is a wonderful place to work. Because any conversation that you can have is an opportunity to, to talk about Jesus. How wonderful to live in the streets at the full of unbelievers. Have you ever wondered why you live in the place that you live? Because you're, you are the best hope that your neighbours have of hearing the gospel. That's why you're there. It's a wonderful time to be alive in Christchurch and in London because we're surrounded by unbelievers. The story is told of the Nigerian shoe salesman who was sent out to uh, West Africa to sell shoes. And after six months, he sent back a report to his uh, 
sending company. The situation is hopeless. Uh, nobody wears any shoes here. Bring me home immediately. So he was brought home, and another event, another salesman was sent out. And after six months, same place, the second salesman sent down a, sent back a report saying, the situation's marvellous here, nobody wears any shoes. Send all the shoes you can find. In other words, it's not hard to be involved in evangelism here. Because everybody needs the gospel. Our challenge is not, you see, a shortage of opportunity. Our challenge is a shortage of gospel workers. But notice the need is not just for clergy. The harvest needs labourers of every kind. Yeah, including preachers and teachers, ministry trainees. But we need everybody. We need everybody to stop being spectators and get on the pitch. I don't really care what position you play, but don't spend what's left of your life watching other people. We need all kinds of workers. I'm sure your church is like ours. We need bringers. People are not very good at explaining the gospel, but they do have friends. We're good at inviting people. We need chatters, you know, bakers. We need preachers, we need planters, we need patrons. We need everybody. The need is for evangelistic workers. As the people God has created us to be, the circumstances God has placed us, with the gifts and privileges, resources and opportunities entrusted to us, what could you do? What could you contribute to helping some of the people in the burning houses around Christchurch to be rescued? Don't be a clean-shirted winner. I, I gather in this part of the world that some of you play rugby, and that you might even be good at it. And I've heard that. Now, I, I know you don't believe it, but a long time ago I used to play. So I'm allowed to talk about the league because I was a winner. You know the clean-shirted winner? You know, at the end of a match, you know, you come in and there's the forwards. You know the, I don't know if you know anything about rugby, but you come into the change room and there's all the forwards. You know, they're covered in mud. And they're covered in blood. And they've got bandages, you know, hanging off their heads and their ears hanging off. And they, they've got blood around their face. They're missing some teeth. You know, it's like they've been in a war zone, yeah? That's the forwards. And then you look around and there's the clean-shirted winner. You know, not a mark on it. You know, Christian is still there. And the forwards look at the clean shirt of him and say, were you even in that match? Were you even playing? I mean, look at you. And you can imagine arriving in heaven, for some of us it's not long now. Imagine arriving in heaven and there's the Nigerians being blown up for their faith, covered in blood. And there's the North Koreans. And there they are, they're all they're missing limbs, you know, and then you've got the Indian Christians and the Pakistani Christians. They've all got stories to tell. You've got the South American Christians and you've got the Syrian Christians and the Eritreans, they're all covered in blood. Stories to tell. And there's a little bunch of clean. Little bunch of Who's that lot? Oh, that's the Brits and the Kiwis. I do not want to arrive in heaven with no stories to tell. No, no one ever insulted me. Nobody ever took a swing at me. Nobody ever had a, had a you know, hard word to say. To spend my life hiding like a comedian. That is not a way to arrive in heaven. But 
But notice finally, there's a Lord of the Harvest who answers prayers for more workers. So we're going to launch into reaching Christchurch and London with the gospel. It starts with prayer. But this is the Lord of the Harvest who loves to answer these prayers. It's the second prayer that God he commands us to pray. Pray the Lord's Prayer and pray for more workers. And he answers as he now demonstrates in the next chapter he sends out his disciples on mission. So we're going to evangelize Christchurch. We need to begin with prayer. And then we need to go. So can I say to you, if there are parents of any children here, can I ask you, what do you pray for your children? Will you pray that whether or not they play rugby and whether or not they earn a good salary? Why don't you pray that they'll be an evangelist or a church planter or a missionary? Or they'll do whatever they can to contribute to God's mission. To those of us who earn well here, um, will you acknowledge that everything entrusted to you has been entrusted by God? That his priority is mission? Will you continue to contribute generously to gospel mission? To those perhaps who come from an ethnic minority here in the city, and you can reach a community of other people in this room who just can't reach. Could you invite people, could you bring people and establish a ministry amongst your community? Don't be a church that's a cruise ship for passengers dedicated to their own comfort, or a tall ship for antiquarians preserving traditions, or a battleship for warriors obsessed with blowing other churches out of the water, or a Greenpeace ship for activists obsessed with social campaigns, or a research ship for academics involved, devoted to scholarship, or a racing boat for competitors in tribal competition with other churches. Be a lifeboat, dedicated to reaching the lost before they drown in your sea. Be like Jesus the evangelist, with gut-wrenching compassion for everyone you meet, willing to get on the pitch as a worker, no longer a spectator, dedicated to do whatever you can do, proclaiming the gospel, and raising up workers for the Lord's harvest field. And shall we pray to that in now? Let's bow our heads and pray. Let me give you a moment of quiet just to pray for the Lord of the harvest yourself. Pray for his help. We acknowledge before you this morning that you were an evangelist, relentless you trying to reach the lost. And Lord, we want to be more like you, but we find it hard. Please, with your spirit, help us to learn how to reach out to those around us. We acknowledge that people need you, that people are stressed and burdened, and they desperately need you, like sheep and shepherd. Help us to believe that. Help us to see the people around us as people who need you. And that therefore we're loving them well when we introduce them to you. Please help us to love people in every way your word requires. And especially with the gospel. It's the great relief from eternal suffering that people need above all else. And Lord, please would you help us to be workers in your harvest field. Help us to stop being spectators, just watching from the sidelines and cheering others on. 
depending on whatever position we can play, that we can get on the pitch and do what we can to contribute to world mission, starting here in Christchurch. Lord, would you in this year ahead, please help us to find someone in our street, someone in our workplace, someone in our family, someone that we can talk to Jesus, to them about Jesus, and bring them on to church to hear more about him. Lord, would you give us the joy of having a friend, a colleague, turn to Christ? And would you help this church, would you help this church to be a lifeboat, concerned for those who are drowning in sin, not a cruise ship or any other kind of ship, just dedicated to our own comfort? Well, please help us to take what's left of our lives. Help us not to arrive in heaven with no stories to tell, nothing much to say. Lord, in what's left of our lives, as the people we are, please would you use us to contribute to your mission to reach the lost. We ask it for the glory of our Saviour Jesus.